Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This podcast episode was recorded on Monday, November 7th. And immediately after recording, I put together a highlight reel of the most actionable items from the episode. And this was about 10 minutes in length, and I then sent it out to premium subscribers. And so this is a great way for time-pressed individuals and busy professionals to get all the actionable items from the podcast without having to listen to the whole thing. And also getting this before anybody else. And then a couple of hours later, I was able to put together the transcript, which was also made available to premium subscribers. And this is just one of the many benefits you get with becoming a premium subscriber. You also get the Daily Contrarian, which is a morning market briefing that I put together every market day morning. You get it by 7 a.m. Eastern Time, and it's basically a breakdown of the events, economic data releases, earnings, and other things that are moving markets in a day ahead. All delivered from a contrarian perspective, of course. So to sign up, you can enter the go to the website that was mentioned at the top, contrarian.supercast.com, or visit our substack, contrarianpod.substack.com. There are additional benefits as well, including an exclusive chat I have set up for subscribers where we discuss every day what's going on. That's available on the Substack app, also on the Discord, which you get access to, on and on. A lot of benefits, low price, sign up, and I'll see you there. Now on to this week's podcast. Here you go. Here with Bob Elliott, the CIO of Unlimited Funds. Thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm really excited about this to have you here on the show because you have a, a pretty big Twitter following and a pretty big Twitter account, I guess, with a lot of views and that, that have been published elsewhere as well that are very contrarian. And I wanted to jump off here and start with a couple of them here that I've gotten from observing, uh, some may say stalking, your Twitter account. But uh, <laughs> Re- Reading, I appreciate that you're, <laughs> that you're reading. I, I'll take yeah. every reading. <laughs> it's the least I can do. But anyway, first off, you say here, prepare for a slog in equity markets. No crash, no bottom, just a slog. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think most investors who are in the market today their, their formative investing experiences, and certainly the ones at the, at the uh, forefront of their minds, are basically 08, uh, if you've been around long enough, uh, and 20. And in both cases, those were pretty unusual cycles in the sense of there was you know, a massive decline, a very fast decline in equity markets, the economy, et cetera. And then there was quite a reflationary impulse from the Fed in particular, along with global central banks, in order to help stave off you know, an unwieldy depression. And the result was, all things considered, a pretty V-shaped dynamic. Certainly in the asset markets, you saw from the point in which equity markets started to meaningfully fall, let's say in 2008, in September 2008, the bottom was in March, and then you know, equity markets started to take off. That's much longer, or that's much shorter, for instance, than we've been in this 
downswing in the equity market so far this year. So I think that's really on people's minds. And then when you look at other macroeconomic cycles, what you see is, frankly, that a more traditional macroeconomic cycle, which is that you get, you know, economic conditions are relatively tight, you get inflationary pressures emerge, you get a central bank responding to those inflationary pressures, you get a tightening of monetary policy, that that dynamic, which is what we're in right now, which I sort of call a, a very traditional inflationary cycle, is not fast. And, and I think that that is like, you know, people sort of like have grown, they like get their Amazon deliveries overnight, right? They kind of want their recession <laughs> overnight. And the reality is like, no, that's not how this is going to work. Like the way this is going to work is it's going to take a long time because the function and the tools of monetary policy necessarily take a long time, which is that first you got to tighten, then you got to slow the de deteriorate asset prices, then you got to slow demand, then you got to weaken the earnings profile for uh, companies, and then they've got to stop, start laying people off, then wages have to fall, then spending has to fall, then prices have to fall. That, that, is a, that is a lot of steps along the way, which will take a very long time. And frankly, we're like just getting started. Yeah, interesting point. Although one could certainly argue that when where asset prices are concerned, at least if you look at equities and bonds, those have been fall, fallen off a cliff going back about a year now, back to November of 01. And aren't we just one pivot away from the Fed from ramping up again? I guess maybe you can make the argument that the Fed can't pivot, which may be... I'm right. Well, I think that's next. I think that's the basic issue, which yeah. is there's two core issues, which is one with inflation where it is today, which frankly, like we're going to see some numbers the for the next couple of months, at least it's it's almost predetermined that inflation is nowhere near what their targets are. And so they get those numbers with a lag. And so then they have to respond to those numbers. If that is by its nature, backward looking, it's just how it goes. And so what you see is a situation where they're going to continue their tightening cycle. But the economy is not particularly sensitive to the rate rise. You know, I think if if you had told people we're going to have, you know, 500, 600 basis points of short end rise and frankly, everything's like fine, you know, stocks are down 20 percent, which is like not that big, you know, from all time highs, not that big a deal. I think people, most people would have been surprised by that. But if you look at the if you look at the underlying balance sheets of the various sectors, companies, households and the economy, like the, the period of 15 years of unbridled monetary stimulation has put them in pretty good shape to withstand these types of conditions, this tightening of monetary policy. And so that's taking even longer. You know, it's less effective and taking longer than I think most people are expecting. So is there a pivot anytime soon? No way. Mm. Not close. Okay. Um, and if anything, we need probably meaningfully more tightening, monetary tightening, before we get anywhere close to, the, to when the Fed is going to reverse or start to ease or pivot or whatever the heck you want to call yeah. it these days. How much more begs the question. We're at 4% now. How yeah, we can easily see a, a few hundred basis points more without, that wouldn't be that surprising. And if you look at the way that the bond market, like the two-year market has really played this, like the, the two-year market and the bond market has always been behind, has been behind for, for 11 months. And so what we keep seeing is these curves, they're just flat flat <laughs> in terms of what the Fed's going to do. And the Fed just keeps tightening. And the reason, and if you look at what the Fed's looking at, which is the most important thing, look at what the Fed's looking at. Don't think, how would you want to run monetary policy? Doesn't matter. Jay Powell runs monetary policy. Don't look at what you think is likely to transpire six or 12 months in the future. He doesn't care. He's looking at the inflation numbers. And when you look at that, there is no relief. And if there is no relief, the Fed will not stop. That's the way it goes. Right. What about political pressure? What about um, other things? Any uh, government institution has an influence, has some political pressure and some influence. Though I think what you, by and large, the Fed is reasonably insulated to the pressures, particularly when fighting inflation, because, the, because inflation is a critical mandate of theirs. And so they are pretty insulated. And I think the, I mean, this is a little bit weedy in terms of the the nuances of the Fed, but I thought it was particularly interesting what we saw in this most recent Fed announcement, which was the statement basically catered a little bit to the political doves, which is fine. The statement doesn't really do anything. And then 
Chairman Powell got up there and said the same thing that he's been saying for months on end, which is we're going to break the back of inflation and we're just going to keep going until we do that. Yeah. And he even said the statement is one thing. I'm here to clarify the message. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what he said. He said, I'm here to clarify the message. He was very clear about his message. And so that's, you know, that's what I would expect. He hasn't changed his message uh, right. since yeah. he started. Yeah, he's been very consistent. I mean, the Jackson Hole, some of this stuff, by the way, was taken directly from Jackson Hole to talk about price stability and all these things. How important Almost word is. for word. It, and in fact, you, it was word for word. Yeah. And if you that, look yeah. at that speech, it is taken word for word from what from things that Volcker said 40 yeah. years ago. Right. And so it is clear what he's doing. Like if you are a student of history and you read what he says and you read what Volcker said, particularly what Volcker said after the fact in terms of the things he was weighing and the trade-offs and things like that, it's almost, it's almost as if, you know, Volcker has come to, to direct the Fed once again. You know, he's, mm-hmm. the spirit of Volcker is in Jay Powell today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, running, coming into this announcement, this Fed meeting, we had, there's several articles about how there, there were other Fed officials that were coming out and speaking about there being a pivot specifically most specifically, Fed uh, St. Louis Fed President Mary Daly saying it was time to consider stepping down or whatever it was that she was saying. Do you think there? And the market, by the way, treated that as an excuse to bid up equity prices, but <laughs> erroneously, it turns out. But in, do you think there's any infighting at the Fed about that? And okay, Jay Powell, but he he does have a, he has a vote on the FAMC, but his vote counts the same as everybody else's. So is there something yeah. there you think or not? I, I mean, I think there's there's, there's two levels of, of that, which is one, at some level, what was being said, which is, hey, we've been raising 75 a clip. Maybe we'll stop raising 75 a clip. Maybe we'll start raising 50 a clip, I mean, which to be clear, 50 is still pretty darn fast, all things right. considered. It's not 1,200 basis points in the span of four months the way Volcker did, but still, it's pretty fast uh, in the modern era. I think those statements, the market misinterpreted as as shift as if like going from 75 to 50 is like a meaningful indication of what's going on. No, and no, basically what the Fed was was way behind. And so then they caught up pretty aggressively. And so then now they're going to shift to maybe 50s or or 25s. I think the more interesting and impactful question is basically whether where the terminal rate is. And that's exactly what, what Powell said, which is stop looking at exactly if we're tightening 75 or 50 start looking at where we're going to bring the terminal rate right? and for how long, that's the thing that matters. And I think when it comes, that's the, sort of the first level is like, who cares, 50, 75, it doesn't really matter, the terminal rate matters and the overall path that they're on. I think below the surface in terms of whether or not, you know, Powell has one vote and things like that. The thing I would say is the Fed has a mandate. The Fed has a, a, a reaction function. Basically, everyone who is sitting around that table is 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 sort of wed to or or focused on that reaction function is committed to that reaction function and so how they're going to respond is they're going to see whatever data comes in they have the reaction function which is like if inflation isn't close to where it needs to go then you keep tightening and then they will keep tightening and so maybe there's like a little bit of daylight between the slight doves and the slight hawks or whatever but i think you could like you could miss the forest for the trees there like the The, the key thing about the forest is as long as inflation is not moving quickly to their mandate, right. it's going to be tightening all day long. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. Do you think that they can get inflation lower without unemployment increasing? No. Okay. And... I mean, not to be too blunt about it, but it's not possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why it's not possible is that the primary driver of the inflationary pressures that we're seeing today, it was supply shocks. It was oil. But the problem is that has then permeated into a very wide range of prices. You know, more than 50% of prices right now are rising, up, are rising faster than 7% year over year, right? So rising 50% are rising faster than and so what that reflects is that there's a permeation of the inflationary pressures particularly starting to see in the surfaces side of the economy Mm -hmm. which is driven by wages so you get a price rise which creates higher a demand for higher wages 
which then creates more money for spending, which creates a price run, right? And that cycle has permeated from the goods. So goods is starting to deflate or has, you know, a lot of sectors have deflated, but goods is like 10%, 15, 20% of the US economy. That's not the thing that matters. The thing that matters is services. Mm -hmm. And now that we've gotten this dynamic in the services cycle, the only way to break the back of inflation and services is to have a, a weakening of labor market demand, of labor market conditions, which then feeds into weakening of wages. That's just how it works. And so you, so in the same, it's like the way that you deal with the supply chain issues or the way you deal with goods price inflation is by increasing capacity, supply capacity, essentially in the goods sectors, right? That's what we've had to do. You have to basically do the same thing. The, 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 the structure or the, or the, or the cause effect linkages are the same in the labor market. It's just, how do you create labor supply? Well, the way you create labor supply is by having a much weaker demand and firing a bunch of people. Right, like that's that's how that dynamic works, and so you know, there's no other path. Uh, okay. And anyone who thinks that there's another path is fooling. Okay, well, I did have somebody a couple weeks, months ago. I'm not going to name names, but who said who made that point, and and what they pointed to was um, the fact that in the '90s you had a ton of growth, but not much inflation. So, which I guess is different from bringing inflation down. But anyway, yeah, and 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 I mean, there was a very very different dynamics. That happened in the 90s, the com- 90s and early 2000s, which is a combination of incredible productivity today, you know, most recently productivity is negative. There were, inc- there was basically a massive hiring of emerging market labor. Basically, yeah. the emerging markets came into being, like Asia came online. You took people from the farm to the factory. You took literally hundreds of millions of people from the farm to the factory. That is behind us, not ahead of us. Plus, you had an era of integration and globalization, which helped streamline supply chains and move production to the lowest cost producer. That also, as we can obviously see, is starting to shift meaningfully right now because, you know, because of geopolitical considerations, whether you think they're right or wrong, doesn't really matter to a macroeconomist. What matters is that, that it exists and those supply chains are breaking down. And so now you have chips they have to be produced in the U.S. and you have inputs that have to be produced in the U.S. and you have onshoring and all of that, which is just the total difference than what we saw in the 90s. And so we've got a secular backdrop that's, that's radically different than the 90s. And then we have a cyclical dynamic, which is we happen to have relatively tight labor markets. We happen to have had stimulus, which has helped fuel nominal demand. And so we happen to be cyclically at a time when we're at peak inflationary pressures in, a, in an environment of secular secular inflationary pressure starting to emerge as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. The, uh, so the, the issues you talk about services and employment is what we're seeing in, in uh, Silicon Valley right now, news today, yesterday about Meta slash Facebook laying people off starting this week. Twitter obviously already cut 50% of the staff apparently. Uh, some uh, reports last week about Stripe, which I thought personally was the most disconcerting one, but whatever just because of all the small merchants that are connected to yep. it, et cetera. Uh, is that the start, you think, of this services unwind when it comes to the labor market or not yet? Yeah, I, I think, you know, in many ways, what we're seeing in any in any economic cycle, there are companies that are early in the cycle in terms of early uh, to decline in the cycle and, and very sensitive to to the the cycle uh, deteriorating, and then there are companies that are much later. And so, if you look at the if you look at the dynamics today, I think what we're learning for the first time, frankly, is that a lot of these mega tech companies, first of all, have never been through a real recession. Like I'm talking about, like a traditional recession, right? They've they've were growing too fast in 08 to even like be affected by the recession. And so now, what we're seeing, and 2020 was, if anything an oddball case that was beneficial to them rather than detrimental. So now we're seeing very boring macroeconomic recession. What are these companies? Most of these companies are advertising companies, not Stripe necessarily, but, but Amazon, you know, huge portion is essentially advertising in terms of its structure. Uh, Certainly the fast sensitive stuff. Meta is just an advertise. It's like a newspaper, right? Twitter is a newspaper you know, in a, in a slightly different form. And so typically advertising is one of the fastest moving sectors uh, in terms of the earliest to shift to downshift as the macroeconomic cycle turns. I think you're seeing that combined with the fact that, to be honest with you, like these, these companies were the least prudent 
in terms of their hiring cycle based upon more secular trends. And so, yeah, they're facing, you know, over overemployment uh, in many of these companies against a top line that's starting to fade because they're early in the cycle. But like, if you look, if you look basically like say a challenger job claim, challenger uh, job layoff announcements, what you see is basically other than in New York and San Francisco in the tech industry, firing uh, or, or layoff announcements are actually down this year hmm. uh, meaningfully than they were last year, right? And so we basically have, you know, I think the tech community, the New York, San Francisco tech community, like has a lot of intrigue and interest and people want to look at it. Um, but in the grand scheme, but when, if you're trying to hire somebody to do some manufacturing in the Midwest, can't find them. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to hire somebody who is, you know, doing a service jobs, uh, say tourism or airlines or any of that stuff, can't find enough people. And so the vast, vast majority of the economy and the labor market is very, very tight. And these New York and San Francisco tech jobs, you know, they don't matter that much. And they're very, very much on the leading edge. And uh, we got a long way to go. Mm. All right. Um, last question on the Fed before I move on to some other things. That, but uh, just going back here to what, what do you think the Fed will do at its next meeting? And how much longer do you see them raising rates? Well, the Fed tightened 75 or 50. I, hard to know. Doesn't really matter. Okay. No one, no one probably will have, no one has like a good alpha opinion on that. It's kind of a, a coin flip. Um, yeah. And it doesn't really matter for the macro economy. Like, where are we going? You know, it's going to be, we haven't had, we haven't had the deterioration of the labor market. We haven't had the slowing of, of incomes. And we certainly are very far away from the slowing of inflation. So, you know, I can easily see a circumstance where they keep knocking out 50s for a while here, mm. you know, and could you get 6% over the, you know, let's say they do four meetings at 50 or, you know, a few meetings at 50 and a couple more meetings at 25. Like that seems totally plausible, reasonable. I think the biggest thing to recognize is like, is that as an investor today, this cycle is very different from the cycles that we've seen before. And so as an investor today, you're, you're best off, instead of trying to like pick the pick the terminal rate, you're better off recognizing you don't actually know what the terminal rate is. And so you're better off engaging in momentum rather than value, so to speak, mm. in terms of where that rate is priced. And keep your eyes on the various things that will lead the things that will cause the Fed to shift their policy. So things like you know initial claims or, or continuing claims are good leading indicators of uh, or good coincident indicators of job market weakness uh, or strength, which are good leading indicators of whether incomes will come down and eventually inflation will come down. And so I'd be much more focused on looking at those indicators and seeing how they're playing out uh, at different points in time, basically seeing if they're starting to deteriorate as my canary in the coal mine, much more than I would try and pick a particular rate. Because is it possible they could keep raising 300 basis points? I don't know. You don't know. Most investors don't know. And frankly, the Fed doesn't. Know. And I think that's an important thing to, to think about, that they don't even know how far they need to go. And so we're much better off trading on the on the momentum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. All right. Yeah, that's what I've been telling uh, my daily listeners. Speaking of which, segue into the Daily Contrarian, which you can get as a premium subscriber. You also get these, these episodes without ads or announcements. And I put together a actionable items highlight reel right after we are done recording. In fact, I will do that tonight and send it out to you. You sign up at the website contrarianpod.substack.com. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information.
That's contrarian.supercast.tech. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. And we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details, contrarianpod.substack.com. So if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits, including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the Daily Contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Bob Elliott here, CIO of Unlimited Funds. Bob, this is the segment of the show where we ask our guests to tell us a little bit more about himself or herself, himself in this case, and how they came to the, the, the state of their career. And uh, I know there's a big fund in your background, uh, one up in Westport, Connecticut. I don't know if I can I can identify them. I guess I could, but whatever. It doesn't matter because it's all in the public domain. But but let you talk about um, yeah how, how your career has transpired, what got you into investing in the first place, and how it got to be that you started this fund and you have an ETF too. You can tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my my career has been basically uh, twenty years as a systematic investor. I got into investing. In college, uh, my my training is uh, my academic training is more in the in the pure sciences. Hmm. Um, but I found increasingly, like one of the things that I found very interesting is basically in the same way you could think about like a scientific. I studied plants a lot. Like you think about the plant ecosystem as being like a series of cause effect drivers, and how does the whole ecosystem? You know, it's a complicated ecosystem that fits together that then determines like whether a plant grows or not, uh, which is the core of uh, my research many years ago. By the way, um, I'm to a guy who barely passed 10th grade bio, but anyway, <laughs> go on. Yeah. And True so, story. and so I thought like, I look around, you know, our lives, our day-to-day -day lives. And the thing that kept striking me was how, frankly, like it seemed like all these macroeconomic forces are the things that actually drive our day-to-day -day lives. It was the 2000s recession. I went to cash early in, two, in the summer of 2000. Thought that that was like a great, you know, uh, a great trade. Was patting my, myself on the back when I went and pulled all my money out of cash in the summer of 2001 and put it entirely in the stock market because, of course, the stock market was bottoming and ended up losing money for the course of, you know, two additional years before it bottomed. And like that whole dynamic I found fascinating as basically like, Oh, this is this is this wild like system that's running everything in our lives basically that we're sort of living in and it's running things and i i started uh getting into investing mainly from that perspective to sort of understand how the world works and things like that you know and i was at bridgewater for a long time i increasingly you know i was i was there and and was really one of the small handful of investors that took it from a niche uh, inve investment house out in the woods of Connecticut to being the institutional incumbent that it is and built investment strategies across all sorts of different asset classes and such, um, many of which are in the flagship pure alpha fund. Uh, and, and over time, you know, basically um, wanted to, but over time increasingly recognize that the sort of world of two and 20, um, is not is like pretty good for the manager. I mean, it's great mm. for the manager, right? You charge high fees, you know, you you live a good lifestyle, but it's pretty bad for investors because even though the manager generates great returns, they basically take it all away and fees the investors are left with nothing. The combination of that and uh, seeing the biggest, most sophisticated institutions in the world 
basically running meaningful parts of their portfolio through diversified hedge fund strategies uh, and other alternatives. And I got to thinking basically, was there a way to sort of bring low cost indexing, uh, diversified low cost indexing to the world of uh, two and 20? And that was really the, the spark, uh, the question that started Unlimited, which was, uh, was could we create low cost index products for two and 20 strategies that could be available to everyone. And, um, and, and that, was, that was really the core of it. Now, of course, to do that, you got to do something very different than what a typical indexer does. A typical indexer looks at what's in the S&P 500 and just buys it. It's not that complicated. You can't invest directly in these two and 20 products because most of them won't take your money. Like the Bridgewaters of the world won't take the average person's money. And even if they did, they charge you two and 20. And then what do you do with that, right? You got to pay yourself something and investors are even worse off than they were before. And so instead, what we worked on was basically a technology that allows us to look over the shoulder of those investors to understand how they're investing uh, in close to real time, and then be able to create a, a replication or use that understanding to uh, to, and translate that into long and short positions in you know, low-cost index ETFs, which we which basically serve as the the backing of our uh, index product HFND ETF, which is uh, seeks to replicate the gross of fees returns of the hedge fund industry, and then we do it at a much lower fee structure than a typical two and twenty manager. Oh, that's really interesting. So, how do you get the data on the hedge fund positions? Yeah, so most uh, hedge funds. Um, uh, report their returns to one of the main uh, return aggregators. So like a Bloomberg or Credit Suisse and things like that. Uh, and then what we do is we look at that information. Uh, we look at the returns information, particularly at, uh, at the individual sub-strategies like global macro or, or uh, long short equity or uh, managed futures. And we, and we compare the returns that we're seeing to a plausible set of exposures that those that fund style could have on or could be driving their returns. And when we do that comparison, you basically infer what positions they have on at, uh, at each point in time. And so it's a little more complicated than that. We use a variety of machine learning techniques, which are pretty, pretty advanced, have, you know, weren't around uh, years ago um, to, to not only solve for uh, today's portfolio, but also in the context of the returns that are the portfolio that explains the returns through time because returns are time varying or I sorry are path dependent, uh, time varying and path dependent, and so we use machine learning to do that most effectively. But the gist of it is we basically look at how their returns are going and we infer what they're doing from that pattern of return. Hmm. But aren't most of the, these hedge funds much more actively traded than just sitting on various instruments? And not not really. I mean, that's all right. Many. Many of these funds, particularly the biggest, most sophisticated yeah. ones, they you can't really move money that fast. It's a short right, story because right. you start to move the markets around. Yeah. Um, and so typically, what we what we see uh, is that you know it can take months for positions to come on or come off. And certainly, when you go a level up, and we're sort of looking at, I call sort of the wisdom of the hedge fund community is kind of what we're trying to draw on. So uh, uh, the sort of average insight across a bunch of different managers, that wisdom of the crowd, it, it takes time to evolve, you know, like most equity long short managers were long growth in tech, you know, in mid 2020. And then they entered this year, 2022, much more conservatively positioned. You know, it's like an 18 month transition. That's very similar to what we see, what we see with other styles and managers. And so even though we're not, we're a little bit behind, right? We get the information and then we analyze it and put it, put on the trades. It's not, it's not so bad relative to how fast we see these things moving through time. Yeah. Um, and then the other concern or question there would be, I mean, hedge funds, like, so I've studied this at some length, the, the number of hedge funds that have outperformed the market over the last 30 years. And you can kind of name them on one hand, at least from yeah, the ones that I've well, that's But that's because of the fees. Right? No, those are net of feet. Oh, right. I see. That's because yeah, of the net fees. Of fees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, that's the problem. The problem okay. is not the strategies. The strategies are darn good. The problem is the managers take all the money, all right. <laughs> and, and they take they take all the alpha that they're generating into their own pocket, leaving investors not much better off than they were. And so that's why I emphasize that what we're doing is we're we're targeting tracking the gross of fees returns, the pre 
before fees returns of the hedge fund industry, because that before fee return, as an example, over the last 20 plus years, is 100, a little over 100 basis points better than the S&P 500 with half the volatility. Well, that's okay. a return stream that anyone would, and, and not 100% correlated by any stretch, you know, modestly correlated to, to the market. That's a return stream that anyone would want in their portfolio. The problem is the fees. The problem is not the strategy. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, that's that's an interesting take. And the um, and now is this is it? This isn't just equities, is it? What other instruments is it? Or is it just no, we use uh, we use basically uh, positions, long and short positions in the fifty largest liquid markets in the world. Wow. Uh, so you know, you're talking uh, sectors, uh, equity sectors, equity factors, equity, you know, other geographies, uh, major bond, credit, currency, uh, and commodity markets as well. So we put that all together. That sort of fifty. Our, our universe, our selection universe is about 50 plausible long and short positions at any one point in time, we might have you know, some subset of that on depending on exactly the composition of the positioning uh, from the managers cool. that we're seeing. This of course begs the question what you're seeing right now and what kind of trades these hedge trades to the extent that you can talk about that. Yeah, know. well, I mean, of course, I, if people wanna see the positions, the interesting thing is they're available uh, every day uh, on, huh. at unlimitedetfs.com, you can, you know, just like any other ETF, you can see the positions that we're holding, which is a reflection of that technology, that understanding. I think the thing when you look at the positions today that's very interesting is we're seeing basically the biggest divergence between hedge fund positioning and the sort of common retail investor than we've ever seen 25 years. Really? Uh, yeah, to- just We've never seen such a such a divergence, and and the main things that we're seeing are that hedge funds risk taking is basically as low as it's been in 20 years, because of the uncertainty of this market environment, and frankly because the attractiveness of cash relative to positioning and assets. We also see those managers when it comes to their equity positions, basically extremely conservatively positioned into value oriented sectors and net short growth-oriented sectors. We see them short bonds on net, which is obviously very different from what we see many uh, investors. Many investors are holding long bond positions and have been burned by it. Hedge funds have been short bonds all year, Mm -hmm. which has been a big, important component of their their, uh, outperformance of index returns. And then finally, we see them holding uh, positions in commodities and gold, long Mm -hmm. positions in commodities and gold, uh, which are the largest positions that we've seen them hold in 25 years, reflective of a uh, inflationary dynamic. And so, you know, and most common investors basically hold no commodities or gold, you know, gold and commodities are a bit of an oddball thing for them. And so uh, I think it's really telling when you think about what is going on in the world, seeing where sophisticated asset managers are positioned relative to where the common investor is positioned. And, and frankly, how, uh, how unprepared the common investor is for this inflationary cycle. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's interesting. You got short bonds, long commodities. Okay. And, and long, long gold. gold yeah. And value versus growth sectors. Yeah. So, so, I mean, really, and, and, um, and, and very low leverage. So like, you yeah. know, 60% in cash. Huh. Uh, kind of. Wow. Yeah. That is really something. Okay, cool. All right. Back to the macro picture here. We talk here uh, about the fed and the Fed's target rate when it comes to inflation, 2%. You've tweeted a little bit about that, how you say that there's not much of a chance of that. And you said this is one of the big, big issues for next year, is the Fed potentially moving away from this 2% target. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, I think there's a real question on many investors' minds about whether the Fed will either do what's necessary to bring inflation down to 2% or, or will accept structurally higher inflation in order, you know, basically bring inflation down maybe a little bit and kind of uh, call it a W and uh, and accept that there's higher structural inflation. I think you know, the thing that's very interesting is that um, there's pretty big, pretty big uh, camps on both sides, meaning like there's lots of sophisticated professional investors as well as retail investors that are holding both sides of that view. And that what that creates is actually a pretty big uh, dispersion or could create relatively large moves in the markets, depending on which path that they take. So, you know, they, they, could, they could take the path of accepting higher inflation, and that's got a set of 
dynamics in the markets and then they, or they could not. And then all those people who were basically positioned for them to be easier than expected are going to be burned by that. So you know, that's, that's kind of like where that settles out, I think is a really interesting question. It might lead to some non-obvious solutions, particularly if they choose to hold a higher inflation rate or they choose to accept a higher inflation rate, because we may well see long end, uh, the long end of the bond market really sell off, create a big steepening if that's where they end up. And that that could actually be net detrimental for equities, mm-hmm. even though on the surface, easier money seems better for stocks. But what mm. you could have is you could basically have tr- what is traditional bond vigilanteism in the sense of you could have a lot of selling on the long end, so the Fed holding the short end down, but a bunch of selling on the long end, which creates a big curve steepening, which is actually quite terrible for equities if you have that risk premium expansion in dollar assets. And so that dynamic is, it's not, it's not certain by any stretch, even if they accept higher inflation, that that's actually going to be good for the equity market hmm. um, on net. Hmm. Wow. It's, uh, you know, one thing that one common theme here is that the long end of the curve of the bond, long-term bonds do not sound like they have any potential upside here looking forward. I mean, I'm sure there might be some around the edges, but. It, yeah, it, it, it yeah. certainly, it certainly doesn't look the types of conditions that are, uh, that would align with a bond rally. Uh, we're yeah. not there yet. We're not yeah. seeing uh, deterioration in economic conditions or um, uh, a weakening of inflation pressures. And and so part of what, you know, if anything, the bond market has been really lagging this whole cycle, which is the short rate market keeps uh, keeps dragging up and up and up. And the bond market just kind of keeps getting brought along. Um, and until, you know, the Fed is in a position to, to start to ease, they don't necessarily have to start easing, but we, you know, the, the market, et cetera, has to look at the, the conditions and say, oh, it makes sense for the Fed to stop tightening or start to uh, bring easier monetary policy to the, to the market. Mm. Until that really happens, the bond market's not looking great. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no question. Uh, last question. We've had a couple of these now. Hope, hopium, the hope for the Fed pivot. We've had at least two, right? This last before this last meeting, and then heading into Jackson Hole. Both times, Jay Powell came out and killed any hopes for the Fed pivot. Uh, the first time, at least, and there may have been some time earlier in the year. I can't even remember. But do you think that the, have investors learned their lesson? And are we done here with hopium, at least when it comes to the Fed pivot, or is it like the boy that cried wolf? Will they go there again before the next meeting or at some future point? Well, I, I think if you um, if you take the, the pulse of the market, what you hear and what you see is that that investors who were basically uh, steeped in you know by the dip. Fed response to flagging growth conditions, Fed immediate response to flagging growth conditions. You know, there, it is it is incredible actually how many times a day I I interact with someone who's basically trying to find a reason why you know the macro economy is a disaster and the Fed needs to ease in order to support the equity market. Like every, if it, it's constant where someone's trying to find a thing that will help support the notion that the Fed needs to ease or, you know, stop tightening or will ease very shortly or things like that. And like it, it, it's become a bit of a, a, a side hustle is disavowing people of the fact that the macro economy is a disaster. It's not, it's growing fine. I mean, it's, it's fine. It's, it's, it's growing modestly at very elevated levels or disavowing people the fact that the labor market is a total disaster, like wage growth has basically never been better, you know, claims are at secular lows, uh, you know, there's lots of good indications why the labor market's fine. And, and this is when we get to the, we sort of start with the beginning of this conversation, you know, what is a slog? A slog is a boring, slow shift of economic conditions from being elevated to being weaker and one that takes a long time to play out. And that's frankly, that, that is the tension is that there's a bunch of people walking around saying the economy's going to the can. It's happening in three months. 
I, people are saying there's going to be 5% unemployment in three months. Like it's basically impossible. Right. And I think, and that's all born out of that COVID 08 financial crisis mindset. And it's wrong. It's like very, very wrong relative to how macroeconomic cycles play out through time. And instead, frankly, like if you and I get on this uh, podcast a year from now, I think what we'll be seeing is like, you know, unemployment's ticked up a bit. Growth has slowed a little bit. You know, interest rates are higher than they were, you know, and in a way that is like, frankly, pretty, pretty boring. And that is, that's the slog, you know, it's not, it's not very exciting as an investor uh, and requires immense patience to navigate through just in the same way uh, the 2000 cycle required mm. investors to have immense patience to wait to see all the different parts of the economic cycle play out to finally achieve that durable bottom, to finally achieve the reacceleration or, or the, the improvement in, in the markets. That took three years, yeah. right? Just keep that in mind, three years in 2000. And, and that is not that unusual in terms of a cycle. Yeah. Um, and that's probably, you know, is it two years? Is it three years? Is it four years? I don't really know. I'm not going to pick that. But is it a lot longer than now? Yes, it's going to be a lot longer than now. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that people still have hope may be an indication that it's we're not due to it ending. When people talk about it being range bound permanently and there being no hope, that's when maybe you can start. At least going back to the early 2000s, and I do remember it. Um, okay, last question. Sorry, I did have one more. No, no, you can <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> the midterms tomorrow. Yes. Tell me about what you're expecting there. I'm not into the politics side of things. I have no particular edge or opinion about it. I, I look at, you know, data-driven analysis of political outcomes like 538 or or a number of different equivalent type analyses. They suggest that there's a pretty high probability that the Republicans will take at least one of the House or the Senate and most likely both. That creates a uh, an interesting uh, dynamic, which is, you know, uh, a split government, which typically creates uh, much less legislation being passed. And, and, and frankly, like the idea that there's gonna be big stimulative legislation in an environment of uh, divided government going into a general election like seems, seems like a pretty low probability. And so on the margin, that split government will be beneficial for the Fed because it's just this less stimulus versus you know, dealing with the Inflation Reduction Act, which was a bit inflationary, and, uh, and the, uh, the student loan relief and all of those different things, they're not, the Fed's not going to have to deal with that expansionary fiscal stimulus while they're trying to tighten monetary policy. The thing that it adds is a level of tail risk to the market that I think, you know, people often don't discuss in these circumstances. If you go back through time, you know, you've got a couple of, I call core functioning elements of the government, which is they got to pass a budget in order to keep the the government open. They also will probably have to pass a debt ceiling rise. Both of those things are critical functioning. Um, typically through time, they are non-events, uh, like the common person on the street doesn't even think about them. They just sort of happen. But in a politically charged environment with a clearly, you know, so let's say there's a clearly divided government structure, you can easily see uh, certain you know, you could easily see, frankly, one side or the other. I no no particular opinion on one side or the other, but one side, either the Republicans or the Democrats, could hold up passing such legislation in order to extract, you know, politically desirable outcomes. And frankly, those could have meaningful tail risks. Like if the government shuts down, like that has a direct hit to economic activity, mm-hmm. which could be quite detrimental for the economy. Um, it also, you know, not raising the debt ceiling. Like the, the U.S. government might technically default on its debt. It doesn't really matter in that sense. It's a, I won't get into the details so that I could bore you to tears about it. But the, the U.S. government's not defaulting on its debt. But anything that creates, frankly, noise about the idea of holding treasuries is just going to make things worse in terms of you know the general supply and demand for bonds uh, and raise interest rates for the rest of the economy. And so you know those things could easily play out. It could be a lot of friction. It could be a lot of bumpiness. Uh, in the in the name of political expediency, and that's probably underpriced or typically is underpriced relative to uh, what what's in the market. Given that that most people just don't even have it on their radar, they haven't lived through yeah. you know 
through uh, a debt ceiling fight or, or they might not be acutely aware of a debt ceiling fight in the past or, or really acutely aware of the consequences of a government shutdown. I was going to say in early, uh, when was it that Trump that they had, there was a, sh- a brief shutdown of the government. I want to say early 2019, maybe. Yeah. There's been a few, uh, there's been a few of those brief shutdowns. I mean, yeah. like on the order of days, which yeah. um, uh, haven't mattered that much uh, in the grand, in the grand scheme of things, they don't matter that much, you know, shutting down 10% of the government because it's only non-essential shutting down 50% of the government because it's only non-essential that shuts down, which is only, you know, 12% of the economy or something like that. It's not that big a deal for economic activity. But if you had a circumstance where you had a extended shutdown, and and I think, you know, that's certainly, I'm not saying that's a probable outcome, but it certainly would be a plausible outcome, given the type of conflict that exists in the political arena. Like, could you have a government shutdown for three months or six mm-hmm. months? Certainly see, like, plausible. Mm-hmm. And we are totally unprepared yeah. for that. Very few people are talking about it or the debt ceiling. Uh, I mean, one of the consequences of the debt ceiling, I'm not raising the debt ceiling, is it would limit the amount of outlays that the government could do and create a fiscal contraction, a forced fiscal contraction. That's another example, probably not in people's minds, not really thought about, but these are the sorts of tail risks that rise when you have uh, a divided government circumstance that, you know, probably... They aren't really getting talked about too much uh, and probably, as I say, are probably underpriced. Uh, the risk of them are probably underpriced in the market. Interesting. Yes. Interesting points. All right, Bob Elliott, thank you so much for coming on the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. Fascinating discussion. Really enjoyed it. In closing, maybe you can tell our listeners how they can find out more about you. I'll put these in the show notes as well. Yeah, great. Uh, well, you can follow me uh, at uh, Bob E. Unlimited on Twitter, where um where much of uh, the course of this conversation was uh, inspired by. I'm very regularly uh, uh, going through my various macroeconomic thoughts. Um, uh, Unlimited itself in our uh, initial product, the HFND ETF, is investable on all the main uh, discount platforms and brokerages. Um, So you can find it uh, listed on the New York Stock Exchange, HFND. Uh, And you can learn more about the fund itself and the prospectus and all the nitty-gritty information you might want to see, including our positioning uh, at unlimitedetfs.com. Cool. Awesome. Thank you, Bob. Thank you all for listening. And we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time.